You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. Okay, everyone. Today we have Jim McKelvey, who is the founder of Invisibly, but there's actually a lot more that goes into this. Let me just read off the list right now. He's a co-founder of Square, which for those of you that don't know, merchant services, aggregator, mobile payment company, and publicly traded. And we can go across the board, but Jim started seven companies. So we'll talk about that. And he has a new book coming out called The Innovation Stack. So Jim, I think we're going to jump all around for this conversation, but it's, it's nice to have a person as dynamic as yourself on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Eric. And yeah, jump around because my resume doesn't make any sense to anybody, including me. So (laughs) and we can talk about glass blowing or books or payments or you want to know what's going on at the Fed. I can even tell you some stories. Oh, well, yeah, we definitely should talk about the Fed. So I guess for me, what I'm curious about first is you've done a lot of different things. I'm more curious about what has made you into who you are now, how you think about things. Because what you mentioned before we started, your whole thing is to start companies and then get out of the way as quickly as possible and then kind of move on to the next thing. You're thinking about the world in a big way. How do you solve kind of what's going on right now with the pandemic? So how has Jim built the way that he's built right now? What has led him up into where he is right now? You know, there are a bunch of stuff. I don't know that I can point to one thing, but there, there was sort of one thing in my college career that was really telling to me. And that is, I wrote my first book when I was a freshman computer science student at Washington U in St. Louis, because the textbook for the class really sucked. And I thought, well, I'll write a better one. And so as stupid as that sounds, that's what I did. And the book got published and it became a bestseller. And then I got another book out of it. So what happened was I got this sort of undeserved reputation as knowing a lot about computers, which was not true because I didn't play with them as a kid. I really was not even studying engineering. I was studying economics at the time. But what happened was I had so much cred in the engineering school that I started hanging out with the engineers and getting invited to participate on the best teams. And if you know anything about engineering education, they don't work solo. They, you always group into these teams. And because I was invited to be on the best teams, I developed the skill of working with people who were way smarter than I was. And that I think is sort of a fundamental element of who I became because I'm really comfortable working in a room where I'm the weakest person. But I also have a skill set that allows me to make everybody else stronger. So I don't necessarily do that much, but working with me will make you better. I love that. And that's very humble of you to say too. So I'm curious. So Square, publicly traded company, and I read Hatching Twitter, by the way, before, and that was a really interesting book. I don't know how true it is, but it was just fascinating to me. So I was like, Jack Dorsey's a really interesting character. So how did you meet Jack Dorsey? I hired him when he was 15 years old. His mother ran a coffee shop, and before Ridland was commonly available, we used coffee beans to stay awake. So we used to go in and buy these chocolate-covered espresso beans from Marsha Dorsey, and she mentioned one day that her kid liked computers, and we used a lot of computers. So I was like, well, send him down. So Jack showed up one day, and it turns out I was in the middle of a crisis. We were pulling back-to-back all-nighters, and Jack pulled an all-nighter with us on the first day, which sort of made him part of the team. So I've worked with Jack since he was 15. Wow, that's amazing. So I guess for your role at Square, is it more of Keith Raboy was the COO, right? What was your role? So I was basically replaced by Keith. So my pattern in companies is to start them and then get out of the way of real managers. And Keith didn't work out as a manager, but Jack wanted to be a manager. I didn't want to be a manager. Yeah. And I was doing a lot of the sort of operational stuff up until we got Keith. And then Keith took over and then, you know, Keith had his, well, there was a situation there. Uh, and Square's got really, really good managers, so they don't need me as much. And what, I guess, maybe we'll come back to, we'll jump around again, but 
at what point did you start thinking, okay, my job in a company is just, just get in and then get out really quickly. And maybe there's some practical, I don't know, lessons or books or anything like that that you can recommend to, for people to kind of get into that mindset. Yeah. So in my case, I realized that I was lousy at a manager as a manager because I tried to do it and I didn't enjoy it. And I wasn't particularly good. And I have trouble sort of focusing for 90 minute meetings. And the greatest thing in the world for me is the fast forward button. So I discovered very early on that I was not the right person to lead things. But I also had, you know, sort of this weird skill, which allowed me to build things that hadn't been built before. So I'm really, I won't say I'm comfortable doing stuff that hasn't been done before, but I'm relatively comfortable. In other words, compared to the average person, I'm way more comfortable in a situation like COVID-19, where nobody knows what the hell's going on, or starting a payments company when you don't know anything about payments, or all the other stuff that I've done has been pretty much new to me, but also in many cases, new to the world. And you just said something about, didn't know anything about starting a payments company. Um, yeah. So how did that idea come about? What's the story behind that? Were you and Jack just sitting around like, what happened there? So Jack started Twitter and they kicked him out of Twitter and he came home to St. Louis where we're both from and we hung out and Jack asked me if I wanted to start a new company with him. And I was like, yeah, sure. What do you want to do? And he's like, I don't know. What do you want to do? I was like, I don't know. So we decided to go out and brainstorm in California. So we spent a week brainstorming. And the only thing we knew was that we wanted to do something with mobile. And so we hired a mobile developer and he was starting in a week. And then I went back to St. Louis where I'm a glassblower and went to pack up my studio and lost a sale to a lady who wanted to buy a really expensive piece of glass. But she had an Amex card and I couldn't take an Amex. So I lost a sale, called Jack up and I was like, hey, I know what we should do. We need to figure out a way for me to get paid. Wow. So just like that, it's totally one of those stories. Wow. Yeah, just absolutely happened. And then uh, we had the tech working three weeks later. It was literally moving money. Three weeks after I had the original idea, Square was live and violating a bunch of rules. Incredible. And did you guys know it would be kind of, I mean, I'm looking at the stock right now, $35 billion market cap. Did you know it would be as big <laughs> as it is? Or That's funny because I never look at the stock. It stresses me out to see how big it's <laughs> become. No, I will tell you that neither Jack nor I knew how big it was going to be. And we actually made a bet whether or not the company would even succeed after the first year, because what we were doing was so new. I mean, people look at it now, it's kind of obvious, but at the time, everybody was telling us we were crazy. We were getting a bunch of grief from the payments industry. We were breaking 17 laws, rules, and regulations with every transaction. So we had the feds on our ass. I mean, it was not clear that it was going to be this successful. So feds were on your ass. By the way, there is multiple points where you guys could have died really easy. I think there is a point where I was reading a story, Amazon could have killed you. The feds were after you. Like. How many times did you guys come close to just being like completely gone? Once. It was Amazon. The big deal at Square was when Amazon copied our product about four years in and undercut our price by 30%. And when Amazon does that to a startup, the startup dies. And that is a 100% true statement, except in one case. And the case is Square. Wow. So we were the only company to ever survive a direct attack by Amazon as a startup. And I say that very boldly. I've never been contradicted. And I've said it probably 500 times now. But that's actually why I wrote this book, because I was happy we survived, but I couldn't answer the question, why did we survive? Yes. And so I started looking for other companies, and I couldn't find any. And then I, I stumbled on this, this sort of historical trip where it turns out that what happened to Square has happened to a lot of companies throughout history. Maybe one in a thousand companies actually has the same thing happen to us, that happened to us, happened to them. 
And I was like, oh my God, there's this pattern. It's not a common pattern, but it's super, super powerful. And what I noticed was all of these companies had the same trajectory as Square, which is we were trying to serve underserved markets. We built this thing called an innovation stack, which I'll explain as much as you want. And then once you get an innovation stack, you end up creating a totally new market that you then just totally own. So the biggest bank in the world, innovation stack, biggest airline in the United States, innovation stack, biggest furniture company in the world, innovation stack, and like on and on and on. And I saw this like, holy crap, I've got insight that I wish I'd had when I was, you know, 20, 20 years younger. And so I went to Herb Kelleher. So Herb was a founder of Southwest Airlines. And he was actually, so I, most of my research was from history. And the problem with doing historical research is you can delude yourself into thinking you're right just by picking the right examples. So if you study like the right parts of history, you can say, oh, well, people always do this. And it's like, no, you dumb shit. They don't always do that. It's just you were really selective in what you sample. So I took all my research and I was like, I can't do anything with this until I validate it with somebody who's actually still alive. And most of the people I studied were all dead, but Herb Kelleher was alive. And so I took all my research down to Dallas and I spent an afternoon with Herb and I showed him everything I'd done. And we had a great time. And I said, you know, do I have something here? And he said two things. He said, first of all, you absolutely do have something here. He said, you've got to publish this. The world needs to see this because it's what we did at Southwest Airlines, but I didn't realize that it was what was happening at the time. And, and I've heard that again and again, which is this pattern, once you see it, is obvious, but it's not obvious until you have it pointed out. So what happened was Herb Kelleher, who's like an idol of mine, basically said, go write a book. And I was so jazzed that I decided that I would not write a business book because business books are boring and pretty much suck. So mm-hmm. I decided to write a graphic novel. So the innovation stack, the first draft was just all graphic novel. And I went to show it to Herb and he hated it. Like he hated the idea of a cartoon because he thought the topic was too serious to treat sort of in a funny way. And uh, I was really surprised because like Herb had a great sense of humor, but I rewrote the book for Herb as text. Actually, it was as text and graphics, but then my publisher killed the graphics because it was like half text and half graphics. It was really sort of schizophrenic. Yeah. So we just said, look, nobody's going to read your graphics on an e-reader or an audio book. So just start typing. That's what the book ended up. But there's still actually, I give, I did make part of the book into a free comic. So if you go to jimmckelvey.com, you can get a free copy of the, uh, well, Love that. I mean, yeah, like this comic book is, oh, it's, it's, just, like, it's just like, yeah, it's like chapter nine. It was actually drawn by a guy who used to draw Batman. There you go. Trevor Goring. Yeah. But yeah, like there's a murder, (laughs) you know? Yeah. That's a city that burns, you know, it's good comic book stuff. Cool. So let's go into the book a little bit. So what goes into innovation stack? So it's this weird thing. If you, what you need to understand first, Eric, is that there's sort of two types of problems in the world. There are problems that have already been solved and you can copy the solution and you probably should copy the solution. And then there are problems that haven't been solved. And in that case, you don't get to copy. Most of the problems we spend our lives with are solved problems, okay? Like, I'm going to go get dinner tonight. Guess what? That's a solved problem. I got a bunch of options. I'm not going to have to, like, invent the way to feed my family tonight. I'm sitting in a chair. Sitting down is a solved problem. We figured out a bunch of ways to do it. Most of them are successful. But then there are these unsolved problems. If you go into the world of an unsolved problem, which is really rare for humans to do, but actually it's becoming more common now because we got COVID-19. But if you're solving an unsolved problem, then you need a different skill set. And you're less of a tourist and more of an explorer. And so what happens if you look at how that process unfolds is you end up not doing one or two or three things differently. You'll probably do 10 or 20 
And in Square's case, I counted 14 things that Square did that no other company at the time did in financial services. And so I call this thing an innovation stack, and it turns out to be the thing that powers entire new industries. And there are tons of examples throughout history of this. Just basically, it's not like you even dominate a market. It's that you create your own market. So for instance, everyone was like, oh, well, Square's a disruptive company. We're not really, because we didn't kill any of the companies that we were entering the market with, because there were literally no other companies in our market. We just made the market 20 times bigger and then took most of that for ourselves. Got it. You know what's interesting? It's reading the Twitter sphere. You see VCs are like, you know, here's my investment thesis. I'm only going to invest in things that I know are going to blow up. And actually, one of the guys was, I'll just say, worked at Square. And... (laughs) You know, yeah. it's, but like, how the hell do you know it's to your point? You just proved it. You're like, you don't really know it's going to blow up and you don't really know if it's going to be a disruptor. Like, how the hell do you know? So you can't really make statements like that, right? Well, I mean, you can if you're investing in businesses. You can't if you're investing in entrepreneurial companies. So let's do some definitions here. The word entrepreneur never used to mean every business. Like these days, anyone who starts a coffee shop is an entrepreneur. A hundred years ago, if you open a coffee shop, they call you a business person because coffee shops have been open for thousands of years. Like there've been people drinking coffee for a long time and there's a formula for that. So if you're following a formula, then you can be a very successful business person, mm-hmm. but you're not doing what was traditionally called entrepreneurship. Now, these days we call everybody an entrepreneur who's opening a business. So the, the word's basically lost its meaning. But yeah, I kind of know the VC you're talking about. And, and look, I'm not going to knock him. I'll knock myself because I'm a general partner at uh, FinTop Capital. We invest in FinTech SaaS companies. We have a total formula. Like if you fit our formula, we will typically make a 10x uh, return on our investment. And so far that's been happening. And FinTech is this thing where, you know, it's sort of rinse and repeat. Now you're going to do things a little bit differently, but it's like, like if I want to build a different chair, I could build a different chair, but it would still probably have a seating surface 18 inches off the ground, three degree slant, some padding, probably some arms, probably some sort of legs or something. It's probably not swinging from the ceiling. Like we'll fund companies that follow our formula. And look, I'm not knocking people who do that because that's a good way to make money. If you want to make money, don't be an entrepreneur, be a business person. But if you want to be an entrepreneur, like if you want to do something that's never been done before, then you are going to be really alone. And the reason I wrote this book is because nobody talks about solving unsolved problems. Most of the business books you read are talking about business. They're talking about stuff that's already been done before. And they have checklists and formulas and all sorts of stuff. There's no checklist in my book. It basically says, here's what it's like. Here's this process. And then a bunch of stuff about how you do it. Got it. So for Square, you mentioned you had 14 different things that differentiated you. I'm assuming in the book, you have a lot of different examples too. So what are some practical examples you could use Southwest or whoever just say, hey, this company was different. Here's how their innovation stack really separated them. And it's like these couple of things. Do you have something like that? Yeah. So let me give you an example of Southwest Airlines because you know I talk about Square all the time and it's ugh. <laughs> uh, but let me tell you about Southwest. So Southwest just wanted to be a regional airline in Texas. And what happened was they got attacked by the existing airlines. And this was before airline deregulation. So these companies would undercut Southwest and they blocked their IPO. And they were basically like blocking fuel pumps. And Southwest was in so much trouble that they had to sell one of their four planes. So they had four planes originally. They went down to three planes. And then they realized that if they could turn the planes around in 10 minutes, they could keep their same schedule. 
So they had to figure out a way to turn a plane in 10 minutes at the gate. Now, at the time, planes were taking an hour at the gate. Okay, so to go from an hour, which is the industry average, to 10 minutes is, it was thought to be impossible, but Southwest kept at it. And they did like 15 different things differently. And I can tell you some of them, like one, they only flew 737s, which meant that if one of their crews had a problem, they could swap planes. At United, they have 16 different type ratings if you're, if you're a United pilot right now. So you can't just go from a 787 to a 737. Oh, by the way, if you want to know why the 737 MAX is crashing, like I can tell you why. Herb Kelleher told me why the 737 is, why the MAX is, yeah. is a problem. But the point is, what Southwest did was different from, they had one class of seating, so you don't have to sort people. They had this special boarding process, used plastic cards. They had no meal service. They had point-to-point. They used different airports. They did all these things. And if you put them all together, that's what Southwest Airlines was. It wasn't just one or two things. And the totality of that innovation stack made Southwest the most profitable, the most, well, they became the biggest airline in the United States and absolutely the most profitable airline ever. They just killed it. And they did it right in the face of a bunch of competitors who had exactly the same tech. So the beautiful thing about Southwest is it shows the power of an innovation stack, even when everybody is flying 737s from Boeing. Yep. So what I'm hearing, I mean, a couple of things they did was they, A, they made it cheaper, they simplified, and they aimed to kind of speed up the turnaround time. So just, it's not necessarily, I mean, I read a piece that you wrote on the Harvard Business Review talking about how maybe a lot of people shouldn't be setting out to disrupt, but to try to expand or innovate within a certain business model. Yeah. So disruption is this weird thing because we talk about disruption like it's good and it's not necessarily good. It's at best a side effect that happens if you're competing in a non-innovative space. So typically, let's say I'm going to open a coffee shop today. Okay. So I live in St. Louis and I'm going to open up a coffee shop and forget the virus. Let's assume people actually are out hanging out in coffee shops right now. Well, where are my customers going to come from? A, I'm going to talk a bunch of new people into drinking coffee or B, people are going to leave the other coffee shops and come to mine. It's mostly going to be B. Okay. So if I have a really good coffee shop, that's going to hurt the other coffee shops, but that's not entrepreneurship. If I was building something totally new, I would probably not touch any of the competitors because there aren't any competitors. So if you look at what Southwest Airlines did, they were not stealing traffic from Braniff and Texas International and United. They were stealing traffic from the buses because like the people who could have fly United were flying United because it was a totally different thing. But the people who could fly Southwest had previously been riding Trailways bus lines. Yep. Makes sense. I'm just looking at all these other pieces that you wrote. There's a Forbes piece over here too. But I think I want to take it in the direction of talking about how you decided to create a new innovation stack for Invisibly, which is we're talking micropayments for journalism and publishing. And I think that's really relevant right now because a lot of these publishers are getting destroyed and journalism, journalists are, are out of jobs. So yeah. can you talk about that a little bit and why you decided to do it, what it is? Yeah. So Invisibly, which is my current thing, is trying to do two things for every person in the United States. And we're just limiting it to the United States right now. But we're trying to give you control about how your eyeballs are bought and sold. And two, we're trying to give you the ability to pay more for things you like and pay less for crap. And you say, wait a second, I want everything to be free. And I say, uh, no, you don't, Eric, because free stuff is typically crap, okay? It, like, it costs you money to produce something of quality, especially like you're going to record this podcast, you're probably going to edit it, like you're going to do all this work, okay? And you need to get paid. And if you're a journalist, 
Like if you just write your first draft and say that's it, and you don't fact check and you don't edit and you don't rewrite, you don't do any of the actual work, then it's just crap. Or worse than that, let's say you don't even bother to research. Let's say you just make it up, which we call fake news. Well, it turns out that the way journalists are paid today is out of your control as a consumer. So forget journalism because it's complicated. Think about food, okay? Now, maybe you're a vegan and maybe I'm a paleo guy, right? So we have completely opposite diets. Like you'll only eat vegetables, I only eat like bacon. But we can both go out into a marketplace and buy good food or cheap food. We have choice. And if the food is really good, i.e. it's expensive and difficult to make, we have that choice. Likewise, we can buy cheap stuff. The same thing used to happen in journalism because for a bunch of economic reasons I won't bore you with, but that's always lost when journalism went online. Advertising was the only real way that journalism was supported. Now, there are some subscriptions, but they don't really work at scale. So most of your media is supported by ads. And the problem with an ad is you're paid per second of your attention, which means if I steal 10 seconds of your attention, I make the same money as if I create 10 seconds that you love. And that's a problem for you because you want to pay more for the stuff that you love and less for the stuff you hate. And right now, you as a consumer have no way to do that. So Invisibly has a way to fix that. It's very, very ambitious. I'll tell you it doesn't work yet. So I've been three years at it and I still don't have my prototype, but we're getting close. Got it. Is the thought, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when you say micropayments, are you leveraging some type of blockchain technology? No, it's not, it's not crypto-based. Crypto is too slow, honestly, for these. You're talking about fractions of a cent. Yeah. Um, so it's just an honest ledger. It's really simple. The biggest idea here is that if you think your time is free, then media can be free. But what you're really doing without your control is you're selling your attention to advertisers. Right. So, I mean, go look up a recipe online sometime and see how many distracting, idiotic ads pop up while you're just trying to figure out how to you know, caramelize onions or something. <laughs> and that is basically you giving away your time in a way that's out of your control. And it, like most people are worth more than $2 an hour. Well, if you actually look at the money that you're earning for watching ads, if you did nothing but watch ads for not, it's like under two bucks. I'd sit there and say, well, wait a second. You mean I can buy an hour of my time back for $2? Yeah, here's two bucks. I mean, frankly, if I could bet an hour of my time back, I'd pay a hundred bucks for it. But people don't have that choice right now. We want to give them that choice. Got it. Okay. So what are, by the way, I, I love it. So, I mean, the mission here would be, you guys wouldn't necessarily be competing with like a Substack or a Patreon, right? No. No. No, no. It's totally new. And again, it's, it's entrepreneurship in the sense that what we're doing has never worked it's an unsolved problem. So we don't get to copy anything that works, yeah. which means it may not work. And all my investors have been warned that I may vaporize all their money. And Peter Thiel is one of my investors. And I sat down with Peter and I was like, you realize I could blow this up? And he was like, yeah, if you don't, you're going to return a thousand to one, which was basically square paid off a thousand to one. Buck in gives you a thousand bucks out. So, you know, if that happens again, uh, Peter will be happy. And if not, I probably don't get to go to his parties anymore. <laughs> So practical use case. So let's say I'm a blogger on the internet. I'm like, I'm a journalist that just lost my job. I'm like, okay, I'm going to start a WordPress site. And instead of running ads or anything like that on my site, maybe it becomes a really popular news site, but I'm not going to go with the ad model anymore. I'm going to go with Invisibly. And then people can pay me cents or dollars for consuming content on my site. Is that how it works? Yeah, except for that's basically the idea, except for one thing. And that is it happens without consumers having to make a decision. Oh, so for instance, what we realized about micropayments is that they're these tiny, tiny little fractions of a cent that nobody cares about. 
And so you don't want to have somebody thinking about whether they should pay half a cent for a piece of content or four cents for a piece of content. Like, is there any difference to you between half a cent and four cents? No, I mean, like me either. So all that has to be automated. So we basically automate that by, by getting these proxies for your behavior. So we can still figure out if you like something without having to bug you. So that all happens automatically. And then the, the blogger shouldn't actually have to make a decision. The blogger should basically just be going, hey, look, if I run ads, I'm going to make this much. And if I let my ads come through the invisibly system, I'm going to make 5x. Yeah. So I'm not even going to touch a normal ad stack. But then you as a customer can decide whether or not you want to have a podcast that's interrupted, as many podcasts are with some you know, promotion that you can't skip, or if you want to sort of buy your time back or do it in a different way. And I'm not, I don't want to talk about invisibly because it'll eat up your entire show. But I think it's fascinating because I don't even know if you're considering this, but it's like a, you have a performance mechanism where if they retain for a really long through the content, they get paid a little more on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could do all sorts of things. I mean, ultimately, here's what you want to do as an economist is you want to pay more for good things and reward people who create good things with more money. Right. So what I'd love to do is have somebody who has like a great piece of content that let's say is 10 minutes long and they come in one morning and they say, you know, if I bust my ass and spend the next three weeks doing nothing but editing this, I can make it just as good, but it's only five, five minutes long. Yeah. Right now there's zero incentive to that because you'll make more money on 10 minutes than you will on five. But to me as a consumer, like I'd rather have five minutes that does the work of 10. So I would pay way more for a five minute high quality thing than for 10 minutes of crap. Yeah, that's the word right there. It's it, you're aligning incentives across the board. So yeah, I love it. I hope it works out. I, 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 yeah, I'd want to use it and I'd talk about it everywhere. But anyway, so a couple more questions from my side. We did talk about before the show started that you were concerned about small businesses given the current environment. And you wanted to say something about, and when I talk to my other founder friends, there's sadness around kind of what's going on as a human being, but there is a genuine level of excitement. This is probably the first downturn I've been through, right? So there's excitement on the business side. So kind of what you said kind of aligns with that, but do you want to talk about why you think right now is a good time? Yeah. So, I mean, Square launched at the depths of the last recession. We started in 2008. That's when Jack and I started talking. We launched in 2009. I mean, it was buy one, get one free on condos in Miami up until 2010. And it's funny, the entrepreneurs that I study throughout history have all had these massive calamities. So the biggest bank in the world, like you probably didn't know this, but the biggest bank in the world was started by a guy who was a lettuce seller. He was a mm. produce vendor, okay? Didn't know anything about banking. He was 30 in his 30s. Which bank was this? It's called Bank of Italy, then became Bank of America. So Transamerica, the Transamerica Tower, that was part of it. It was a guy named A.P. Giannini. But the point with Giannini is that he started his bank in San Francisco, California, the year before the great San Francisco earthquake. So the earthquake comes in and you think COVID-19 is bad. Well, San Francisco had the biggest earthquake on record and then it burned to the ground afterwards because of all the fires caused by the earthquakes. So Giannini launches a bank into like a city in rubble, like a lawless, crazy place. And he starts a bank and it works. It turns out that if you look at the history of these companies, chaos and disruption, world wars, famine, like these crazy, terrible things correlates really highly with super successful companies, like hyper successful companies. So yeah, I think, I think this is a good time to start a hyper successful company. Like it's a crummy time to copy something that works. Like if you have a business plan to open up a coffee shop right now, you might want to sit on that for a while, right? Because who knows? But if you have a business plan to do something that's never been done before, now's a great time. 
Love it. And related to that, I guess, for people that are looking to get started, if you had to pick a business book, what would be your favorite one? I typically don't read business books. I've been reading Bob Caldini's uh, Persuasion. I thought it was great. I thought that was really good. I like Gladwell's Entertaining. His insights are really cool. I've been been a fan of Gladwell for years. As far as sort of books that I read to sort of put my head in the right space, lately I've been rereading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy just because of the absurdity of the situation and keeps my sense of humor sharp. Like one of the things you're going to do, and again, I'm really only talking to entrepreneurs. Like I'm only talking to people who are doing stuff that they can't copy. Okay. If you can copy something, you should probably do that and don't listen to guys like me. But if you have to do something that hasn't been done before, then you're going to be pretty lonely. And I have some opinions in that. But if you're going to do a new thing, then you have to understand this totally new process of invention and iteration and failure. And keeping your sense of humor during that is a great source of power. So I'm reading Douglas Adams, but it's like, he's going through this bizarre fantasy story. But then I go into my world where most of my stuff never works. Like invisibly, been around it for three years. It doesn't work. I mean, Square was weird because Square worked almost right out of the box. And so like they didn't need me around after that. Like once it works, you want me to kind of leave. So for me, a sense of humor is super important. Got it. Cool. So we'll drop all those books into the show notes. How about favorite business tool? Favorite business tool? Oh my God. The word no. (laughs) Explain more. Well, I mean, saying no is great, you know, because we're socialized to say yes. If you ever spend any time in Japan, you know, you'll know that the Japanese are culturally, they'll say yes to everything, even when they mean no. Like it's, it's very hard to say no. And I find that saying no has become one of my best things. Just love it. No, no. (laughs) Love it. That's smart. (laughs) And final question. I'm just going to throw this in here as well. I don't ask this all the time, but if I dropped a billion dollars in front of you, Jim, and I said, Hey, you got, you have to invest all this money in, in one company in the next day. Which company would you pick and why? Well, if it's a billion, well, I guess I would put it in square because I'm actually in that situation, right? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, literally, because I guess I could sell my square stock and take it out and shove it somewhere else. Yeah. But I'm just talking about myself. I'm not publicly sort of telling you to buy square stock. I'm just saying it as somebody who's inside the company, I've chosen. So it's not a hypothetical question in my case. All right. it, it actually makes sense because I just want to see how you think. I, I think that's why I ask the question sometimes. So well, but mean, it makes sense. So it's a beautiful hypothetical question. I guess the question in my case would be if you couldn't keep it in square, where would you put it? But in my case, I have literally answered the question by my behavior, which is I've got more than, honestly, I don't check the stock price, so I don't really know, but I'm sure it's over a billion dollars today in square in my company. And I'm not planning to sell it because- yep. My company, or I should say our company, it's not my company. It was never mine, but we got 3,000 employees. We got some phenomenal stuff and some great, great things that I think we have yet to do. And I'm super excited about it. And I wouldn't want to not have that. <laughs> so it. there it sits. There's my answer. Got it. That's perfect. So when did you leave Square? How many years into it? Well, I stopped managing when Keith came on. So that was about 2010. And that coincided with the birth of my son. Got it. So okay. I was, didn't want to make my wife a single mother, uh, yeah. which, you know, if I kept working the way I was working, she would have been alone too much. And that would have well, been, I'm assuming you dialed it back quite a bit since then. You're just like, Hey, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm going to focus on other areas, not work as, 
not focus as much on work? I, I've dialed it back quite a bit. The problem I have right now is that I no longer work for money. So I no longer have a reason to stop. Before, I would always earn enough money to be safe and comfortable. And then I'd quit. You know, like, I'd, like I didn't need any more money. And then the Square thing happened. And yeah, I wasn't expecting to make a bunch of money out of Square. Like I just wasn't expecting this. So, so now that I got it, I, I had to convince myself that I, well, first thing I was just like, can I not work? And the answer is no, I, I have to do stuff. I will, you know, it's like you get a high energy dog, you know, put a border collie in a studio apartment and see how well that works out. You will have pee and chewed up uh, couch cushions, you know, everywhere. And I'm the same way. Like I got to work on something. So, so these days I work on problems that I deeply care about. And one of them, here's the problem that I deeply care about right now. I think we need more entrepreneurs in the world. Like I see way too many talented people who believe that entrepreneurs are somehow different or, or better or more disciplined or smarter. And that's a bunch of bullshit. Most of us, normal people, and I'm a really normal, pretty boring guy, have this power if you knew how it happened. And so what I did in this book was I basically say, look, this is the anti-hero story. You've been led to believe that billionaires and super successful people are somehow different than you. I will prove to you with inside knowledge <laughs> that they are not. And I will show you exactly what they did that the next guy did, that the next guy did, that the next guy did. And it all worked the same every time. And so get off the sidelines. This is the thing. Like right now, we got a massive problem and we got all these people who have the potential to solve these great problems in the world and they're not doing it. You know why? And that's because Hollywood and this fucking industry keeps telling hero stories of you're not Elon Musk. Well, I mean, Elon Musk wasn't Elon Musk 20 years ago. He was just another guy who got kicked out of his company. The heroes are made in hindsight. Jack Dorsey wasn't Jack Dorsey when we started Square. I mean, he'd just been kicked out of Twitter. I mean, I was just a glass blower. Like, like <laughs> quit idolizing these guys and get off the sidelines, okay? And if you wanna know what that's like, then let me tell you some stories of other people who've done it so that it kills that hero myth because that hero myth keeps so much of our potential talent disqualifying themselves. And I just, I want to stop that. So that's kind of my thing. I love that message. And I think people should go pick up your comic book and also the book itself. So Jim, what's the best way for people to find you online and also to get those two books? Okay. So the comic book's free. I'll give it to you. Yeah. It's at jimmckelvey.com and you can download it for free or I'll actually even mail you one if you want to you yeah, know, the new people story. want the physical copy, man. Oh, yeah, the physical copy. It's, it's, this thing's fun. Like, it's just yeah. flat out fun. So, uh, jimmckelvey.com, you can buy the book anywhere. It's everywhere, except I just picked the worst week in the world to launch a new book. So, that's easily available. As far as social media, I will admit this I don't use social media. So, you'll see me on LinkedIn and Twitter and maybe Instagram. That's not me. That's a marketing firm that's trying to sell my book. And I don't use social media. And I'm sorry, I know that it's kind of offensive because my friend started Twitter, but I find it a massive sort of energy drain. So I don't do it. And it's just for me personally, it's a lifestyle choice. I just, I would rather spend time with friends and, or something else than sort of trying to see how many followers I got. So if you care to sort of check out some of the stuff that I think is interesting, I put all that at jimmckelvey.com. So there are essays and blogs and links to a bunch of stuff that I think is interesting. Yeah, and they I can email you on that site, I'm assuming. Jim yeah, Jim yeah. Jim. I mean, but again, I'm not going to be terribly responsive to emails because I get hundreds and hundreds of them a day. But look, if you've got something interesting, 
I have people around me, like you can figure out all my companies and you figure out where you fit. And I would say approach one of those companies because they're all run by people who are really competent. Now, like you want to pitch something to Square, don't call Jack. Okay. And don't even call me, but I will say this. I try to be open to everybody I can be within the bounds of just sort of still being sane. Love it. All right, Jim. Thanks so much for doing this. Eric, hey man, thanks. It's been super fun. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.